Hey, everybody, it's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts. When I found out I was going to be a parent, I immediately felt a lot of anxiety and worry. So I went on to BetterHelp to try to look for a therapist to help me with that. My relationship with my family and with my boyfriend and with myself were suffering. I really needed help. I was ruminating a lot. Really getting those thoughts out to a therapist and getting feedback was just life-changing. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Hi, I'm Eric. And I'm Brittany. And we are... For Collard Nerds. The conversations that black people have... When white people aren't in the room, except today. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops, I got to change the premise. <laughs> it's, it's a little different. So, uh, I mean, now the cat's out of the bag. Cat's out of the bag. Uh, today is a, today's an important day. Today's an important day. For today, several reasons. Yes, for many reasons. Uh, one of those reasons being that we have our first white guest on the show. <laughs> So uh, he did not come unattended, though. Yes, <laughs> uh, but we have two guests here today, uh, and because we want to actually get to talking to them pretty quickly, we're not going to sit around and talk to you about like again what what all the things that aren't happening in our lives. I don't know what's going on. Yeah, I'm going uh, to Tampa next month for a wedding. That's I probably said that last fucking episode. Yeah, I mean I'm going to South Africa. I'm actually pretty. I know you're going to South Africa we're, for a wedding. I'm going to yeah. Tampa for. I'm going home. <laughs> You can see Brittany's face right now. You know, I was just thinking about, I was listening, maybe it was Call Your Girlfriend, and like they did the whole mitochondrial DNA test for Oprah, and she's like, I feel like I'm Zulu. And I'm like, girl, the way, yeah, I'm like, girl, (laughs) the way the transatlantic slave trade was set up, like, it's it's not the cards. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. She's like, I feel it. That's how I feel like you're acting right now. You have beads on today, too. I do. I'm like, I'm, I mean, this is my, my normal uniform is just like a button-down shirt Literally, and khakis. To me, you look like <laughs> Stokely Carmichael today because you're wearing a t-shirt. Carla, you have beads on. <laughs> I was going to say, Carla picked out my outfit today. Yeah, so, I mean, I trust Because a white taste. person was coming. You was like, let me put on my put my beads on. <laughs> she was like, you got to look good today. It's true. You have Intimidate this white man. And my hair is wrapped. <laughs> this is a conscious choice. Uh, nice one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, let's 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 get to the getting to. So we have, as we mentioned, we have two um, amazing guests here today. We're really excited to talk to you about them. Yeah, uh, the authors of All American Boys. Yes, which is a really awesome YA novel. Yes, we'll talk to you a bit more about that in two seconds. Yes, uh, but they are Jason Reynolds and Brendan Kylie. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome. Thank Yay. you very much. Yay. Glad to be here. <clears throat> So, yes, do you want to th- throw to a little more about the book? Yeah, so All American Boys is a YA novel that Jason and Brendan wrote. It was released in 2015 under uh, Simon & Schuster. And the story centers around two teenagers, Rashad Butler, who's black, and Quinn Collins, who's white. And they're two high school classmates whose lives are changed forever 
once Rashad is brutally beat by a white cop who happens to be Quinn's close family friend. Would you say that's an, that's an accurate? Spot on. Uh, spot on. That's spot on. Yeah. I'm going I'm to make sure I memorize that. <laughs> <laughs> we can send you an email. Yeah. Uh, cool. So, I mean, before we really, really get into the book, because there's, I, I mean, there's a lot there. Yeah. <laughs> We'd love it if you could just tell us a bit more about your backgrounds. Yeah. And how you kind of, how you got here. Yeah. Word. Well, uh, this is Jason, Jason Reynolds. Uh, you know, it's funny. I'm a Washingtonian. You know what I mean? I lived in Brooklyn for 13 years until six months ago. Ah. Uh, and I went back to Washington, D.C., which is where I reside now. Mm. And uh, it's funny, you know, I've been in the industry for a long time, 13 years. Uh, I've been uh, in the publishing industry. But this is probably one of the bigger moments, one of the most important things that I've done over that time period. And, and the way that sort of we met, um, you, know, and I, you know, he introduced himself, but the way that we met, we were we were on tour for other books. So Simon and Schuster was like, "Look, we we had I wrote a book called When I Was the Greatest. He wrote a book called The Gospel of Winter, and they were like, we're going to put you guys on tour together and 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 send you around the country in hopes to like drum up some new audience. And like mm-hmm. more than one person is always better when you're doing like these Barnes and Nobles book signings and things mm-hmm. like that, just because they be ghost towns, right? <laughs> and so <clears throat> it just so happened that the tour was was coming on the heels of the uh, Trayvon Martin George Zimmerman verdict. Mm-hmm. So George Zimmerman is found not guilty and my mom calls me crying, right? Like, my mom's 70 years old from South Carolina, right? So mm-hmm. this is a whole other level of scars. And she's like, oh, you know, when is this going to end? When is it going to end? And shortly after that, I got to go on tour with this dude, yeah. right? And here mm-hmm. I am, right? Adult Rule 101, right? No politics, no religion, right? Yeah. Off yeah. the table, right? And so here I am, and all I want to talk about is politics. All I want to talk about is sort of how upset I am, but I'm scared that if he say the wrong thing, I'm going to bust him in the mouth, right? And I'm thinking about all these things, right? And I'm yeah. like, yo, if he doesn't respond the way I, in this moment, need him to, I don't really know how this tour is going to go. Yeah. And um, fortunately for the both of us, um, when it finally came up, we started to have that discussion. And boy, did we have it. And uh, down the rabbit hole, we went. And it kept going. Uh, And it kept going all through that summer. And sort of our friendship was built around the discussion of racism and, and police brutality and white privilege in America, which is a valuable thing to have a friendship built on. Yeah. Yeah. It could, I mean, it also sounds stressful too. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that's also it's, it's you know it's great to have that type of outlet and have somebody to talk to. Yeah. But I can also imagine like like you said, like wading into those waters is not a thing. No. you do you know typically for no. fun. It's rough, but you know I, I, I'll give them credit. You know, and we always have these discussions. You know, we talk about white folks. It's like yo, you don't deserve no cookie for being human, right? Yeah. But I will say that I'm grateful for the safe space that was constructed around this friendship where I can be upset without you trying to fix nothing or defend nothing or like, just let me have my moment. Mm-hmm. We can have some constructive conversation after I get this anger out. And, and and I appreciate a friend outside of my cultural community who can sort of like, because allyship gets thrown around with, it's like, man, you know, y'all ain't yeah. no allies, right? Yeah. Like, let me, let me, let me have my moment before you try to tell me all the things that's, that, that ain't wrong. You know, let me tell you what's actually wrong and how I'm feeling mm-hmm. and experiential truth before you try to fix fix me or fix anything else. Fix you, champ. Like, you know what I mean? Mm. And so I think that's what made it a little easier for us. It wasn't as stressful because he was, uh, and he, I mean, he explained himself, but he was he was wide open, like, in a, in a way that I haven't experienced. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, I, I feel like it's something that I say when we're on stage, uh, you know, um, talking with people and especially with young folks. As, as I'm introducing myself, I like to remind everybody that I'm a 
white man. <laughs> and as a white man, you know, I think my my uh, priority in a conversation about race in America is is to listen, to listen first and to listen and listen more and to uh, remind all the young white folks in the audience when we're speaking um, in front of white kids, mm -hmm. that's their job too. Their first job is to listen, as uh, Jason was just saying, to the experiential truth of people of color in the United States, if we're beginning a conversation about racism, and it was impossible for us not to have conversations about racism on some level while we were touring around the country because we were touring around the United States of America. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, little things would come up that are, you know, if you could see, it's like little in like air quotes because every moment is a, is a big moment. But it came up because it was in the news, but it came up because of little interactions along the way, whether we were at a restaurant, whether we're walking into a bank, whether we're in the airport waiting for a plane to land. It's impossible to not – well, I should – I have to rephrase that. It's very possible that people <laughs> refuse to see that. <laughs> it's, uh, it's much more important, I think, for white people to don those glasses and really uh, take a closer look at uh, every moment that is filled with uh, with moments of racial tension. Um, that, by the way, uh, we need to listen to um, and and look at more because whiteness is the root problem <laughs> to you know what the tension that lies today. Mm -hmm. So. Given all that, yeah. I grew up in Boston in a nearly exclusive white community and uh, was part of a sort of large, uh, you know, my brother and I always say we're culturally Catholic because we don't, uh, we don't go to church. We don't, you know, we don't mm -hmm. believe in the metaphysical in that, in that constructed way. But every family barbecue, it's like every family has like seven siblings. And, you know, it's yeah. like it's we grew up culturally Catholic. Guilt is a big deal in every house. And, <laughs> and, um, and, and, and that was important. But I will say one thing, going to Catholic school growing up, I think it was really, really important uh, to, to learn a, a lot about humility. And for one thing, as a writer and as someone who was trying to become someone's friend, mm -hmm. I think humility is a nice place to start. And when Jason and I met and we were on the road together, uh, as he said, because we were kind of thrust into so many intimate uh, situations mm -hmm. together, dinner together every night, you know, staying in hotel rooms side by side yeah. and, and, and whatnot, it was important, I think, to begin a friendship in a, in a space of humility and, uh, and listening. And as I also like to say... I have not been in the business as long as Jason has. I just started in 2014. I worked mm. in education for 10 years before that. Mm. Um, and I worked in book publishing on the other side uh, before that. I worked in marketing for five years. But this moment and working on this book with Jason is the single greatest moment of my career so far. And I would have to imagine it'll take quite a bit for, <laughs> for something yeah, more sure. momentous to, to, for me to be a part of. So sure. grateful. So, I mean, I'm curious as to how, like, those conversations, because, I mean, Brittany and I had a lot of conversations before we started this podcast, right? <laughs> uh, you know, that's, like, partly been our friendship, is always kind of talking about the things that are going on in the world around us. But I remember when, like, when we talked about starting a podcast, you know, there were always conversations like, you know, like, what, what makes us the most appropriate people to create a platform like this? So I'm curious as to, like, how you go from having you know, really in-depth conversations where you feel like you're you're safely sharing your feelings mm -hmm. and experiences to, we should write a young adult novel about police brutality. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's a, that's a good question that no one's ever <laughs> asked, actually. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, we don't really do much else well. 
It's like, I don't know how to do nothing else. Somebody told me a long time ago, you always take advantage of your advantages. Mm-hmm. And I only have one major advantage, right? Narrative is, my, is the thing that I know how to do best. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to like fighting uh, injustice, I mean, we can look at any sort of social movement. If you look, I mean, the greatest example, of course, is the 1960s and 70s in this, in this particular country. Uh, in the 1960s and 70s, there's a misconception that like every single black person in America was like on the front line, right? Yeah, and it's just yeah. not true. Right. It's like everybody, everybody was at the March on Washington. Everybody was on 125th and Lenox. <laughs> yeah. Everybody. Right. It's like, yeah. no, 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 no. That's that's not yeah. the case. There were people sort of there were there were black people who were pocketed and who were using whatever gifts they had to sort of draw attention and sort of work. There were a lot of people behind the scenes who were turning the wheels. Lots of women, by the way, uh, lots of women who were making all these things go, mm-hmm. right? There were musicians who were making music. There were artists who were making, you know, pieces of work, photographers. Gordon Parks was never on any front line, mm-hmm. right? But he documented everything, right? And yeah. so I, I just think that for us, especially I speak for myself, for me, this is the weapon that I have. This is the tool that I have. And I mm-hmm. think that narrative is, the, language is the cornerstone of culture. Our stories are the only thing that will matter when, when we are all gone. Right. This is documentation. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think we can use, you know, people look at nonfiction as documentation as like the purest form of documentation. When actually, I think that fiction could could very well be sort of uh, at least just as great a form of documentation because it allows for more creative freedom to explore some of the things that are happening across the board in one singular story. Mm-hmm. Right. It doesn't have to be true. It can be all the truths uh, in one truth instead of it being like a singular truth yeah. of, of one person's life. Right. And, and, I, and so for me, long story short, Michael Brown died. And Brendan, and I want to make sure, and I always like to be, he doesn't like this, but I like to be very honest. <laughs> I, you know, you got to keep it 100. Like, yeah. I, this was not my idea, right? We're sitting in a coffee shop. Brendan uh-huh. said, Michael Brown died. We're together. We're angry. We're banging on tables as we always were. And Brendan said, yo, bro, we should like, we should write it. I had never even thought about writing it. And I tell him the reason why is because as a black person in America, I've been a black man my whole life. Mm-hmm. I don't intellectualize being a black man because I am that. I've been in this skin. I don't think about myself outside of myself. Yeah. Right? I've I lived this life. So for me, what, what has become normativity, right? For him, he could see like, yo, we should probably do something. For me, it's like, man, fuck them. If I do anything, I'm going out in the street, right? I'm going yeah. out there and I'm a protest with the, with the kids, right? Yeah. Black Lives Matter. I'm with the kids. And he's like, yo, but we got, we got a weapon. Yeah. We got a weapon. We should we should try to figure out a way that we can do this together. And then I said, first of all, if we and I know you remember this, I said I said, first of all, I said, if we do this, you better come a thousand percent correct. Cause if this thing hit if this thing gets duffed, right, if it's bad, I take the hit. Yeah. yeah. You don't take the hit. Yeah. I take the hit. You yeah. know what I mean? So this thing better if you better if you want to do this with me, we better come all the way. Or let's just not waste our time. Yeah. And he was like, No, nah, I'm with it. Like let's let's get it. And you know. Yeah. It, it really is an opportunity. I mean, we didn't know what the heck was going to happen. We kept it a secret. We didn't tell our agents. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have separate agents. We have, a, we have separate editors. We didn't tell anybody that we were working on this project because we really wanted to protect it as a book that emerges out of the shared space between us and not something that comes out of the industry, not something that comes out of a political objective, mm-hmm. even though obviously it is political in nature. But for the for the book to emerge out of that shared space between us, we had to keep it secret and really is an opportunity because um, as we were touring, right, you know, let's say we're at the Texas Teen Book Festival for those other two books that Jason mentioned earlier, you know, looking out at the audience, you see so many kids 
And because we have this opportunity that if, you know, a publisher is going to to take us on and, and they are going to put us on the road to talk about the book, what an opportunity to say, from my perspective, somebody who's worked in education for 10 years, I know a lot of people and a lot of white people in particular who are very afraid of having a conversation about race, about institutional racism, about explicit racism, and certainly, certainly, certainly about white privilege and white power and white supremacy. So we had an opportunity because if we were to do something together, it would be an icebreaker, I think, for a lot of folks in the world of education who I would like to believe want to help provide a roadmap for conversation for young folks, but are blocked by their own fears uh, and blocked by other institutional problems. So for us to do a book together, it just seemed like if we do it and if the if the book works the way that we, f- we can feel proud of and the, and the publisher gets behind it, that opportunity can't be missed because that summer we were watching one episode after another mm-hmm. on the news, on all social media of young people of color being brutalized and murdered by police. And every young person in America was witnessing that too. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a severe injustice to not try to provide some kind of roadmap for conversation for young folks. And by the way, I would argue for many older folks too, because uh, for those of us who were, you know, bumping up to 40 like me, it's not as if this was part of my curriculum growing up. Yeah. Yeah. And it's certainly not in my super white, you know, segregated Boston growing up experience. So I, I think it works for, for young and old. So... I want to start talking about the book. One of the biggest things that stood out to me in reading it was like, the book is set in present day and Rashad is a teenager who's been brutalized by a white police officer in this way that we've all gotten accustomed to now where like there are tons of videos on YouTube and everyone's taking, you know, cell phone camera footage and marches get organized quickly because people can use digital media to sort of make that happen. Like you see Rashad trying to process. It's very interesting to see things from his point of view. Like it's such a new phenomenon. How did you research that? I mean, you know, I, you know, it's funny because I think that social media and digital media, it's omnipresent. Right. Mm -hmm. And and we're all sort of stewing in it every day. My little brother's 15. He doesn't know life without it. Mm-hmm. Right. That's it. Right. Well, and so the interesting thing about writing Rashad's story, I'll say, is, is how do you write a story that you think everybody already knows? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the one thing that I wanted to make sure that I did was figure out the nuances that we never think about. Like the fact that, one, not everybody who is brutalized is killed. Mm-hmm. And for those folks who are not killed, what is it like to relive your brutalization all day, mm. every day? on timelines, in Twitter feeds, in YouTube clips, in Instagram. And what is that like? Hashtags are an important part of our culture, and it's something that has driven sort of uh, this new movement forward. And I I will always be grateful for for the creation and invention of the searchable hashtag, right? But Mm -hmm. I think with the hashtag has come the oftentimes dehumanization Mm -hmm. of real people. They Mm -hmm. become avatars immediately. As a matter of fact, I wrote a, a, a piece that, the New York Times did not publish, which they should have. Mm -hmm. Shout out to the New York Times. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, I I wrote this piece about 50 years after Emmett Till's death. Like, what if the, the story of Emmett Till was today, right? What would Mamie Till say 
today knowing that she would have not one opportunity to ever grieve her child because she can't turn away, right? So what she did was she opened the casket and mm-hmm, said, invited, invited journalists Jet Magazine. In. Jet Magazine, right? The famous Jet Magazine cover, right? Come look at what they've done to my child and take a picture and put it on the cover of the magazine, right? Huge deal. But once that magazine was published, Mamie Till could then steal away mm-hmm. and grieve. And that is no longer an option. Mm-hmm. Right. So what is it like for the parents of Rashad Butler or Michael Brown, for that matter? What is it like for the Michael Browns that are alive, who have been brutalized, who cannot escape the trauma of brutalization and can't heal emotionally Mm -hmm. because they have been turned into movement martyrs and hashtags? Um, And I think it was something that I needed to explore a little bit and and try my best to dissect and give some nuance to, because even though I want us to continue to push the movement forward, I never want us to strip people of their humanity or forget that these are actual human beings who still need an opportunity to live and grieve and mourn. And no one chooses to be a hashtag. You have no control over whether or not you are used as the as the figure Mm -hmm. to push something forward. And that's something that we have to at least think about. Well, I thought it was interesting, too, just because, like, I am, you talked about hitting up on 40, I'm hitting up on 30. (laughs) And even still, like, having, like, this digital element, it wasn't a part of my teenage experience. Like, it used to take two days to receive a text. Do you know what I mean? (laughs) Like, how, I was 21 when I got a smartphone, so I had, like, an entire, my entire childhood happened before I used that as a lens through which I viewed the world. For sure. But, like, how did you even get in the mindset of that? Man, all we do is spend time with kids. Yeah. When you're a young adult author or middle grade, anytime you're doing any kind of children's literature, I do 165 days a year in schools. Mm. And I have a, a little brother who's 15. Right? Mm-hmm. I have nieces and nephews. There are all these young young folks in my life. And, you know, to be a writer is to be an observer. Right, All you're doing is you're the nosiest person in the world. Right, You eavesdrop on everything, on everyone and everything around you. <laughs> and so, shoot, New York City, what I would do a lot of times when I was still living here is I would, at 3 o'clock, I'd hit the A train. Because you know what 3 o'clock on the A train looks like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. It's like 10 million teenagers yeah. posturing. Right. You get to watch them, watch how they move, watch yeah. what they're doing. And it's all about the phone. So many of them. I mean, that's all they're doing. It's their entire lives exist in the digital space. And so for me, it was just it's to me, any book. And, and we've talked about this a lot. Any any book, there are all these rules in literature. Right. It's like, mm-hmm. hey, don't date your books. Don't put this in no pop culture references. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And for me, any book that does not involve technology that's around that's based around teenagers is just inauthentic. It's mm. just and they're going to call you on your BS. Teenagers don't play. No, they don't. Right? Like they, 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 they're <laughs> they going to call you out. You know, so for me, it just it was a normal thing watching them work, knowing my own addictions to to social media, my own obsessions with text messaging. Mm-hmm. And you figure we got it on the mile end of the spectrum. And so you, you ramp it up a little bit and you can you can hit it on the nail when it comes to, to, <laughs> to, the, kid, <laughs> to the kids. I taught high school. I taught 10th grade English here in New York. You know, a lot of my colleagues would battle with phones in classrooms mm. and, we, you know, would say, you know, all these rules and whatnot. And I just, at a certain point, I was like, this is silly. Like, it's it's like an appendage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, let's find a way to instead actually, like, have it be a part of the classroom experience and not fight it because they really do live on their phones. Mm-hmm. And, and all I'm saying is the same thing that Jason is saying is that we have to do justice to that in, in the book. And by the way, I'll also just take this moment to add, this is partly why I think it's really important that we wrote the book together mm-hmm. and we're very conscious about Jason writing all of Rashad's sections and I'm writing all of Quinn's sections mm-hmm. because we also really wanted to, to do justice to writing out of our own 
cultural authenticity mm. and putting those two narratives in conversation with each other. There's no way in hell I'm going to pretend that I can sit down and write this book, you know, all by myself. And likewise, if Jason did, it would be a very different kind of book. For sure. So this is part of, I think, what we're getting at too, with like your, your question about Rashad's experience, mm -hmm. you know, that is a story that I've never heard anyone talk about. Mm. So I, I think it was really a kind of brilliant narrative choice and when we were talking about how to build this book out, it was one thing that Jason said from the beginning. He's like, I'm going to put Rashad in the hospital and he's going to stay there <laughs> for a while. Mm -hmm. yeah. And it was, it was so interesting because it was a sort of narrative choice that was really interesting. But also it explores this whole part of the story that I feel like we never get to see on the mm -hmm. news. We only see the big social stuff. We never get to see that personal side. And I, I, so I thought that was a brilliant choice. Yeah, that isolation, like really, I mean, like you said, it kind of caused him to really like reflect mm -hmm. in a way that allowed us to observe, like you said, that piece that we don't typically get to see. It was... I, it really helped me kind of connect to Rashad and how he was feeling throughout mm -hmm. the throughout mm -hmm. the book. Yeah. Well, because there's so much action too. It's nice to have to have a person who like I'm static as I'm reading the book. Do you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Yeah. While all of these other things are happening for Quinn, which I'm going to get to in a second, and I felt like Rashad was also static too, and we yeah. were sort of like in that together. About Quinn. Yes. <laughs> yes. The white teenager. So um, I never was an educator, but I did used to coach high school sports. And oh, nice. I grew up in a mostly white environment. The suburbs that I grew up in, like, integrated while, like more so when I was in college. So when I came back and I started coaching high school sports as an adult in my community, like, I was working with a racially mixed group of teenage girls, hmm. which is intense. Um <laughs> <laughs> So, like, there's this uh, – so I read this book. I was supposed to have read it in college, honestly, and I just didn't because, you know, I was I was doing this and that. Yeah. I was running – I was going here and there. But, um, I remember those days. Yeah, you remember those days. I was trying to figure out, like, how do I interact with them? Like, because I had never worked with a racially mixed group of children before. So I read this book, Why Are All the Black Kids Staying Together in the Cafeteria by Dr. Beverly D. Tatum who is the president of Spelman College down right. in Atlanta. Yeah, HBC. The woman is – Brilliant. She's brilliant. But for those of you who haven't read it, like Eric, um, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Appreciate the, it. the subtitle of the book is A Psychologist Explains the Development of Racial Identity. So Quinn's growing racial consciousness reminds me of how Dr. Tatum outlines the process of like white identity development, white people going from white people of all ages going from like just they're becoming conscious of race and their own whiteness and going from like being neutral to being like a person who is white. And even like, I don't remember what I was reading recently, but the phrase white people yeah. is like, it stresses white people. Oh, well, it was like an interview that you guys did. Yeah, yeah like the phrase yeah. white people stresses people out. Um, <laughs> so yeah, like, but like, and Quinn's journey was really similar to what I had read in Dr. Tatum's book. Yeah. I mean, I had never really witnessed that before. Yeah. So like Quinn, it was like reading from his point of view, like I was just like, what? You know what I mean? <laughs> um, did you consult any resources to like flesh out his transformation? Because like you said, like you grew up in a mostly white environment. It doesn't seem like maybe you had the opportunity to have that sort of transformation at his age. N no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not at all. I, well, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't put it that, that, that way. Exactly. There are two things. So the first is in my growing up experience, there were, adults who were trying to get people my age to have a better understanding of race consciousness mm -hmm. without using that phrase. However, 
It was all of the conversations that I remember being a part of with, with adults whenever we talked about race in America, the conversation was about people of color. Mm-hmm. It wasn't about whiteness. It wasn't about the white identity as a powerful force in the conversation of race in America. Mm-hmm. So uh, it wasn't until later when I was working in education, and so this is the second part of this too, and the reason why I, in my dedication, I dedicate my half of the book to all the educators who are out there who are doing this kind of work, I learned a tremendous amount from the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond, the same book that you mentioned, mm-hmm. and a host of other books. As an educator, that's the stuff that I was studying to help influence the curriculum building, but also power dynamics in a classroom. So if I'm teaching a class that is, you know, predominantly white, but is still, you know, there are still students of color in the class as a white teacher and a white man in particular, what are the power dynamics I want to be, you know, at least conscious of and, Mm -hmm. and try to shift in the classroom? My own kind of racial autobiography as a white man is influenced by these brilliant educators who have been talking about it for quite some time. Mm-hmm. And so uh, for me, when writing Quinn's section, I'm remembering myself, but I'm I'm trying to use the language that I've learned as an adult mm. to begin to think about that kind of white identity and whiteness. And some of those like folks who have begun to lay a groundwork for helping white people begin to think about whiteness. Like you said that, you know, people kind of, if you're in a grocery store and you're like, white people, it's like. (laughs) Happens to me every week. (laughs) I I mean, it's it's wild how every time. Every time. Every time I say that on stage when we're at a school. Which he purposely says every time. (laughs) Multiple times. Please don't stop. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But you can feel the air leave the room. And that that air has to get out. We got to say it a lot more. And so, again, it seems like an opportunity for Quinn to be able to talk about it, not in a way that I was able to talk about it as a kid because I didn't have the roadmaps in the same way. But I think that now there are many more and there probably were then and I just hadn't been introduced to them. Mm. But even when I was a teacher and I was trying to think about the different kinds of books to have in a class, I was having a hard time finding a novel that spoke specifically about white privilege and white power and even more so was kind of transparent in the kind of identity exploration of of whiteness in that way. I just couldn't find a book for teenagers. Mm. So it seemed appropriate that we would include that (laughs) and work on that. Finding the music you love shouldn't be hard. That's why Pandora makes it easy to explore all your favorites and discover new artists and genres you'll love. Enjoy a personalized listening experience simply by selecting any song or album. And we'll make a station crafted just for you. Best of all, you can listen for free. Download Pandora on the Apple App Store or Google Play and start hearing the soundtrack to your life. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up! 
and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. So, I mean, this kind of come up quite a bit, and it's something that I almost kind of had to like put back into my mind. So you talked a bit, you talked a lot about the fact that you're in the classroom or you're, you know, talking to students quite a bit. It seems like a, like a very much a partner to the actual process of writing the book is then, you know, taking that book to the students themselves, which is something I don't, you know, typically think about in terms of a book. If I'm reading it like a book meant for adults, I experience yeah. a book and I kind of go on about my business mm-hmm. yeah. um, or talk about it here. But uh, <laughs> I'm curious as to how, students are responding to the book and the types of questions that they might be asking. Because, I mean, for for both characters, Rashad and Quinn, you know, you really are taking a pretty significant journey with, like, with them and covering, like, a lot. I mean, (laughs) y'all went in. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm just curious about the conversations that this is provoking within students. And Oh, man. Um, I'll tell you, I'll tell you this, man. First of all, Shout out to the young folks because the truth is is that the adults are terrified of us, right? So it's it's the, the kids are always ready. Shout out to what's it called Mansfield, Mansfield, Texas. Shout out to Mansfield, Texas, who disinvited us to the festival mm. this weekend for, for for giving us the opportunity to be here for this podcast. Appreciate y'all. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? It is what it is, yeah. you know, we, which has happened, which has happened. You know, people are like, ah, we don't want them to come, you know. Uh, and then you get there, and the, the kids are like, yo, we ready. Let's mm. let's let's get it. Right. And so the one thing I will say that's, that's most fascinating is when, when Brendan and I show up, uh, we, we both tell personal stories about our own experiences with police officers, mm-hmm. uh, which are obviously very different stories. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then and then I always ask two questions. The first question is, how many of you, uh, whether on social media or on the news or in any sort of magazine or in TV, know anything about police brutality? And 100 percent of the kids raise their hand. And we're talking about 20, 25,000 kids at this point. Right. Wow. And wow. yeah. And, and 100% of them will raise their hand. And then we say, how many of you have talked about it with your friends? And everybody puts their hand down. Right. And so what we so as we continue to tour, we realize it's not that they don't want to talk about it. It's that there has not been a framework. There's no safe space. It's a hard conversation to have when you don't have the language to have it. Right. You want to talk about Baltimore City. Baltimore City is an example of of sometimes not having the language to express frustration. Mm. Right. It's like being a child when you're a child and you get so frustrated that you cannot articulate it. You break your own toys. Mm. Right. It's human nature. And so what we wanted to do with all American boys and what we've what we've learned with traveling and seeing all these young people all over the country is that they're ready they're just looking for the tool kids need a doorway an entryway that's all yeah. right and once we show up we have we give them a little a little you know this and that and then we open it up to questions and everybody hand goes up we used to collect index cards mm. with questions on them from every single school we have mm. 
thousands of them. Wow. Ranging from questions like, I always tell the story about a young girl in Philly. We were in Philly, 600, 650 students. We're talking about 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds. And at the end of it, I go to the bathroom. Brendan's in the hallway with a young a young black girl. When I come out of the, the bathroom, and he's like, yo, she wants to talk to you. She she wanted to, I told her to wait for you because she wanted to talk to you. And she, I look her in her eyes, and she's this beautiful little young black girl, right? And she looks at me with these big eyes, and she's all teary-eyed, and she says, do you ever just wish you could change the color of your skin? And in that wow. moment, right, because because what she has now experienced or what has now been unlocked is the fearlessness to express her own fear of being a young black girl. It seemed as though she had she had not been given an opportunity to express that anxiety before until she recognized something familiar in, in me or in Rashad or in what we were discussing. And in that moment, I had an opportunity to pour into her mm-hmm. and I got to tell her, look, baby, without you, nothing is awesome in this country without you. It don't work without us. You are perfect and you are beautiful and your skin is perfect. And without us here, this don't this whole thing don't move. It don't roll without without me and you and your mama and your sisters and your brothers. Like it's us who keep this thing turning. And uh, and in that moment, it was just it was a special thing, you know, and that's that's how it's been. Ferguson. We out in Ferguson. Wow. We go to St. Anne because Ferguson is this big. And right next to it is St. Anne, which is actually has the highest police brutality count. Right. We out there. We show up. The principal says, hey, so glad you guys can make it. But here's the thing. Don't talk about your book. We got we got <laughs> yeah, true story. True, true story. They got the whole school in an auditorium. The whole school is there. And yeah. She's like, don't talk about the book. though. Anything else? Give us a talk about literacy, uh, not, but not about the book. Right. So so Brendan and I, we got you have five minutes before you're on. You got five minutes. So yeah. figure it out. So Brendan and I. You know, consummate professionals. We try to be. We get on. We get out. We try to be. They're not always. They don't always go that way. <laughs> Things get a little loose every now and then. Yeah, that's right. But but we go out there and we do our thing, and then we take question and answer. And one of the first questions is, "Yo, why are they gonna talk about the new book?" <laughs> oh, shit. And at that point, we honor the kids. Yeah. yeah, let's get it. And they ready. They ready. Every time. I mean, it it really is every time that the kids are ready and they want to talk. I just feel only way to be a responsible adult. Because I'm irresponsible in so many ways. The only way to be a responsible adult is to honor that, is to honor those moments where these kids are are braver than the adults in the room often. And we were at a a library in D.C., and it was mostly adults in the room, and there was a row of seventh grade boys. They were amazing. And it was spectacular because we we, back then we used to read a little bit from the book. Now we don't even do that. We just were like, let's just get into some conversation. But um, we read a little bit, and then we were like, any questions? And again, it was like, you could see the shoulders of the adults, like, (laughs) (laughs) but every single kid, the hand went up and it was really powerful. So we were just like, all right, adults, forget you for a second. Let's just focus on these guys. And it was, it was amazing. I'm straying far away now from the original question, but it really has to do about the kids and and these moments. White kids, white kids. And the, and the, the, the white kids who, who asked me, like, how do you deal with white guilt and white shame? And, uh, these 13-year-olds. And these are, yes. And, and it's like they're, they, because they, they experience it and they're honest. There isn't the same kind of social fear that an adult has who will not, who wants to put up a wall and not even talk about it, even though experiencing that, that guilt and shame. And it's really tough for me in those moments. But again, I'm not going to not honor that courage yeah. and instead try to like pull aside the white kids and say, Look, those are emotions. That's real. You can you can grapple with those. Like I have them too. Like it's that's a thing. It's real. And if that's where you remain, 
you're going to feel a lot more of it. And even worse, it's going to cause more pain uh, to folks of color. So how do we deal with it? We acknowledge it first. Otherwise, what are we going to do? But then we have to understand that it does, it does nobody else any service. Mm-hmm. So after we've acknowledged that, we've got to put ourselves out there. And you've already done the first step by acknowledging that guilt and shame. Now the next step is to go public. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and, to, and to empower kids to do that, you know, to be the person who's the white kid in class who says, hey, how come every book in our classroom is about white kids? You know, I think it's really important to empower the white kids to, to not be afraid to say that. And so the first way to do it is to deal with those emotions. Yeah. You're like the first white person I've ever That's seen in real saying. life <laughs> who talked about going to the second step. Like I've ever read about it before. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> I heard you. But like, <laughs> it's like, just had a moment. Yeah, I'm just like, it's no, but that's like a thing that people, I mean, there are conversations like that that happen at like the academic level. Yeah, Do you know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. That's not accessible to everybody. I think it's so cool that you guys are, you specifically, dude, are going into schools and telling kids like, don't stay on the first step. I meet people all of the time whose favorite place to stay Live is in the first, that first step. step. Live in that first step. <laughs> born in that first, well, no, not quite. Well, I have met some people who are born in the first step and they're going to yeah. die in the first step. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, your guilt, it doesn't do me. It's killing people. Any yeah. good. Killing, no. killing people out here. It's killing yeah. people. And yeah. It's, I mean, I, I think that's part, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's partly, again, one of the advantages of us doing this together is that I think for a lot of white folks, they intend the conversation about race to be about people of color and led by people of color, mm-hmm. which is good and true, but it also has to have this, this other element of a white person talking about whiteness and talking about, okay, you feel bad, but you know, move on. Let's, let's do some yeah. other things. And because we're together, it opens up these doors. Yeah. And the cool thing too is that we really asked our publisher, we said, look, if we're going to go on tour, let's do our best to hit different communities in a city. So if we go to St. Louis or we're in Baltimore or we're in DC or we're in Boston, mm-hmm. let's be sure to hit schools and libraries and communities that are on different sides of the city and represent the different cultural experiences of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, because when we go in and we do the same presentation, it's fascinating to see the kids raise their hands and ask some of the same questions or want to talk about some of the same stuff. Stuff, and to see the adults in the, in the different communities, you know, yeah. reacting to either what Jason's saying or reacting to what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's cool. I mean, we've done, you know, we've done the wealthiest of the wealthy schools, right? We've done like Gilman in Baltimore. Like, what's the big school up here that we did? Uh, uh, with Horace Mann. Horace Mann. Oh, yeah. like, you know, yeah. and, then, and then we've done alternative schools where you got 15 kids fresh out of juvie. Mm-hmm. You know, and then we've done prison. <sighs> I'm curious as to how you like when you say you've done prisons, are you talking to like incarcerated adults? Like talking to incarcerated youth who are serving hard time. So we're talking about maximum security, hard, like long bid kids. I I hope everybody listening knows that there are children who are locked in prison for 10, 15 years that you never have to think about. Mm. Right. That you should. There, There are young people who are under erasure literally being erased who are locked away in maximum security prisons all around this country with adults with adults just so y'all know um and you know i've done a, a ton of them by myself but it, none of them was uh as interesting as doing it with all american boys and, I, and i'll tell you this Brendan and i went to dc jail right mm-hmm. we're in dc jail we have 15 20 kids they come in uh sit in a circle and we get to talking about the book and it's great we're having a blast but then you get to also see what black inferiority complex looks like mm-hmm. because they start asking questions like yo you know what though i think the real problem is 
The reason that ain't no white people in jail with us, zero. The reason that ain't no white kids in jail with us is because they don't really make the same mistakes we make. Mm. Wow. And we're like, wait, 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 wait. Right? And then their sort of counselor is like, wait, y'all really believe that? They're like, no, no, no. See, if they make it, they make it once. But then we keep making it over and over again. And so then he started to give them some some history. He's like, you know, some of y'all are in here for grand theft, for stealing cars. Across the bridge in Virginia, 10 minutes down the road, this is a misdemeanor. Y'all mm. serving 10 years. Mm. White kids across the bridge get slapped on the wrist and it's called joyriding. Yeah. And they're like, oh, well, I don't, you know, just, but just trying to convince them that, like, look, it, we're not saying that you are not to be held responsible for the decisions that you make. We're just saying that not everyone is being held responsible for the decisions that they're making. Yeah. In the same uh, way. In yeah. the same yeah. way. And to have that discussion and to have him here, the upside about doing this work with, uh, with a partner, especially when you're in front of a white crowd. Because we, we let each other lead depending upon the, the, the demographic. So we in the hood, I, I'll take it from here, champ. Like, <laughs> right? It's like you, I'll take it, and you you be the, you know what I'm saying? Like yeah. You, yeah. You, you, you add on. You, you're, the, you're the complementary part, right? And if we're in a sort of an all-white environment, especially like these rich white environments, mm-hmm. then like, you know, he, he takes the lead. But the one thing that is amazing is that no matter what, I don't have to be the angry black guy. Mm-hmm. It's very different when white people hear whiteness from a white person, mm-hmm. right? It changes yeah. the whole dynamic. Uh, and that's also been a fascinating experience for me as a black person to be able to sit back and basically in my mind be like, so what now? So so, so now what? Which I, which I got to say now? Because it ain't me. It ain't me throwing stones at your castle gate no more, right? It's one of your own saying that there is something the matter. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so one character in the book I wish I had heard more from was Tiffany. So, like, I noticed in your acknowledgments at the end of the book, Jason, that you had a shout-out to the women. And actually, at the beginning of this episode, you had a shout-out to the women um, who've organized for Black Lives throughout history. And Tiffany is the girl that Rashad has a crush on. Mm-hmm. And she's also, she's alluded to as a main organizer from their high school um, of the march that comes at the end of the book. But she never really comes on stage. Mm-hmm. I saw like a lot more internal development and just like characterization of the white female organizer, Jill, who's a cousin of the white cop who beats up Rashad. You have Rashad's mother as a yeah. black female character. Yeah, you, you have got Mrs. Barry. Barry. Yeah, yeah, you got Barry. You Mrs. have Mrs. Fitzgerald. Yeah. But um, as like a peer, I kind of like was hungry for that. What was behind not having Tiffany on stage? You know what? So this is this is I'm glad you brought this up. It's the second time in the last year that it's been brought up. And you're, by the way, this time is much more pleasant than the first time. <laughs> <laughs> just so you know, I don't aim, I don't aim for pleasant. Just so you know, <laughs> but, but it was pleasant. I appreciate that. But I mean, here's, I mean, here's the thing. The, the, so the honest answer is, the, the truth is, is that Rashad's story is so contained, right? So, like, if we're speaking about it specifically, narrative-wise, and as a writer, um, it's it's honestly just because Rashad's story is literally so contained in one. Space, right? So, if, so mm-hmm. if Tiffany were going to be fleshed out, she would have had to have been fleshed out on on Quinn's side of the story. Um, but we just didn't make that. It, honestly, we just didn't make that move. We just mm-hmm. didn't make that decision. And it wasn't for there. Th- this book was been is interesting because looking back on it now, there are certain things that that we would have done differently. Mm-hmm. There are there are holes in the book that only we know about, mm-hmm. right? Because we wrote the book in six weeks and it was published three months, four months after that. I mean, mm-hmm. it was a it was a whirlwind. And, you know, so, so the honest answer is one, from my perspective, right? Rashad is a, is a contained, mm-hmm. is in a contained environment. His context is contained. Tiffany uh, is a crush, but is not somebody that he is close to, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. she would not come and visit him. She would not, she's not, He's he's crushing on her, right? Yeah. It's like an unrequited crush thing. Um, and two, because of oversight, 
right? Like two because it, it narrative oversight, not the oversight of black girls, but the oversight of the like in the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, based on what we had written in the time span that we had written it, it just it just was yeah. she she slipped. You know what I mean? That's my honest. You know, and you know it's one of those things where uh, when you when you're writing. Um, contemporary fiction and you're thinking about all the pieces of the puzzle I mean we had a whole conversation about representation of women I was we had a I mean it was a big deal for us just because we didn't even want to name the book All American Boys for that very reason mm-hmm. um, but you know I think that you just drop the ball sometimes and and I think if I could rewrite some of those things I think we would have had Tiffany be more so on the front stage so yeah, I mean, I feel like, I mean, it's a shared dropping of the ball because there are many opportunities for more things to happen on Quinn's side that that just didn't happen as well. Mm-hmm. And and I think there was there would be a great opportunity in the book for uh, Quinn to have been pulled into one of those meetings and to have seen the leadership of Jill and Tiffany side by side mm. would have been a great scene, but... It, it, we yeah we just didn't. I we tried didn't. to I and tried it's... to do it with Barry just to make sure that like people understood like yo it's always because it's all in my life at least it's always been the the women mm-hmm. always mm-hmm. they've always been the catalyst right so like showing Barry as like the young the young law student who's like look this is what it's going to be we need to get out here and here are the rules here's what we need to get done mm-hmm. here's right being the person who's leading that charge mm-hmm. or or Mrs Fitzgerald being like look. You could be scared if you want to be scared, but it ain't going to change nothing. Your fear don't don't make things better. So mm-hmm. either you, so be scared and be active at the same time, right, Mrs. Fitzgerald? Sort mm-hmm. of like so. I tried to make sure that the other women characters, but like I said, we could do it again, man. Good call out though. The, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> well, you know, it reminded me of something that I read actually in Why Are All the Black Kids Staying Together in the Cafeteria, and something that I know from my own experience is like in racially mixed environments. Black girls usually fall straight all the way. I mean, in the world also fall straight all the way down to the bottom of the totem pole. So, I mean, I guess I don't I don't know still quite how I feel about your response, but it does make me think of the fact that, like, she would not have had any real interaction with Quinn. That just is not a realistic thing. And like. It's also really likely that a boy who was an ROTC, black boy who's an ROTC and had friends who played for the basketball team wouldn't really have a ton of close, like, girlfriends. Yeah. But I don't know. I still, I mean, you know, like I said, I felt like there were so many cool things that happened in the book. That would have been something that I would have really liked to see. But I mean, you know. Hey, I, you know, I, I look. I, a, I, a number space and opportunity keeping you or somebody else from, you know what I mean? Oh, and there are tons of these books. Oh, next year, there are a lot of these books coming. Books that are sort of outlining these narratives and, and giving different dynamics and perspectives of it, you know. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. 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 And, and written by women. And written by black women. Yeah. A whole lot of them, so. So, to come back to the kids a little bit, and we're going to probably have to wind down soon. I'm curious as to what you're encouraging them in, in terms of the next step, you know. Like, so, so you're reading this book. Uh, you know, obviously it's prompting a lot of questions and, and a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, like when you're when you're talking to them, what are you encouraging them to mm-hmm. to do next? So, I think it partially depends on the community. Like when we are in Baltimore, a city that has really experienced this in in a different way than many other places around the country. Or one of the reasons why I think we weren't in Mansfield, Texas, which is right next to Dallas, has to do with what happened over the summer. It's one thing to 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 encourage something there. So just to put it out there, I I, I would I would feel bad if I if we just like project like here's the roadmap forward. Sure. It's different in each context, but but I I think that often 
one thing we can do, as Jason was saying before, with his with his questions about you know raising the hands, is to encourage them to feel empowered to speak to each other about it. One, in, encourage them to to be able to ask those questions and and hold their teachers and family members accountable to respond to them in conversation about this. And uh, the other point that I think is really that I like to add, depending on where we are, is that I think there's a lot of opportunity for community engagement. And at the end of the day, I think kids have an enormous amount of power. But yeah, and for me, it's usually, you know, I think I think young folks today um, are way creative. Um, and I think it's just a matter. I always tell them, like, look, if you got you got talent, there's a moral responsibility, right? There's a moral obligation for you to use some of that talent. Like, you look, they, we, we, you know, I'm like, look, I'm not the dude who's, I'm not the old dude who's talking about your music and is like, yo, you know, I'm not mm-hmm. that dude. One, because I like a lot of your music, but also, <laughs> I mean, real talk, like, <laughs> jamming, right? But, but, but also, I know that we, we can't, you, you, you party after the work is done, right? And so, if we partying all the time, like, you, you partying, but your, 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 your peers are dying. And so we always had that discussion. I say, look, I know, I know, all of y'all. So many of y'all got five thousand followers on Instagram or all of the things on Snapchat, mm-hmm. right? And I'm like, yo, you figure you got five thousand people following you, looking at you every single day, just because of your face, just because you take two thousand pictures of your face every single day. Imagine, like, imagine the power that you hold, right? Think, start, start thinking about sort of what influence actually is. If that many people are willing to to literally become disciples of you, digital disciples of yours, simply based on pictures of your own face. Imagine, imagine if you just decided to say a thing or two. Mm. Imagine if you decided to, to turn the camera outward just every once in a while to show people your community. You know what I mean? I mean, one of the big eye openers for us was when we were in Texas and we first time we went to an all Mexican school, mm. right? Yeah. Mexican homies is like, what about us? Where we fit? Right. What about what about our, our, our brothers in California? What about the folks here in Mexico, Arizona? They, they trying to build a wall that came up. Yeah. You know what I mean, what, which I think what, what about it? We get we get targeted by cops too. where, where do we fit? Right. And then in talking about sort of how even social media and, and using all these gifts to bring awareness to the fact that this is this is an issue of not just about black and white, but like there are people of color all over this country who are who have been marginalized and who are constantly marginalized. And that we should that we should also be inclusive of that, too, because they were very, very like on point and being like, yo, what's good? Like, what about me? What do mm-hmm. I fit? This, this is my land. Like y'all, y'all, we all in my land, right? What, what about me? And so I think you know, just using your, using your influence and your leverage, all you digital natives out there, it's a powerful tool. All you gotta do is use it every now and then to to say a little something. And and also, as you were saying too, their creative talent, like they can write the next chapter of All American Boys or All American Girls. They can paint the mural. Uh, at their school or in their neighborhood that is active in some way. They can or choreograph a dance. They, whatever it is that is uh, a part of their expression, we try to encourage them to do it, do it. and to not be afraid, but to get out there and, and do that, uh, whatever that expression is. Yeah. So what we try to do, you know, we look at something, you know, we we paint a larger context and then we try to point you know we try to point to some other things that you know either kind of influence our thinking on this or like to, to expand it a little bit um so i'm curious as to what are the things that you would point to you know whether it's like other books that you've read that you think can, can help continue this conversation mm-hmm. amongst kids or even adults looking to talk to their kids or or even like you know other things in, in culture yeah mm-hmm. even some of your peers like some yeah. of your peers who maybe haven't like been able to travel to as many schools or be interviewed oh, by sure. new york times or whoever well 
when I'm thinking about the conversation about the development of white identity, I think it's, it is important for books like this to be paired in certain circumstances with books like White Like Me by Tim Wise, mm-hmm. um, because I, I, I also know that he's problematic in, in, in some ways, but I, I think there is some language there that is beneficial as uh, getting things going. I also think that there, there's a novel that I think has been underrepresented in, in schools all across the country that is very different, but I think is an interesting compliment. And it's Ceremony by Leslie Marmon Silco, which is a remarkable, remarkable novel about uh, Native American soldiers who come back after World War II and experience their post-traumatic stress. But also what they're really, really experiencing is the oppression of whiteness. And that term never gets used in the novel, but that is what the novel is about. It's about having been at war, but coming back and facing cultural oppression. And for me, it's a great compliment because it's that kind of systemic racism that really steps on law enforcement, healthcare, housing, food justice. You know, you name the area of our society, that kind of oppression steps uh, in in all of those institutions. So that's a novel that I would point to. It's not by a peer, I apologize, but I think it's one of the most amazing, probably one of the most important American novels ever written. And for me, I mean, look, I think there's so much outside of our peer group, you know, read Ta-Nehisi Coates, read The Fire Next Time, read The Fire This Time. Mm. Um, I think both of them, read them back to back. All three of them are incredible. I think uh, Kekla Magoon's How It Went Down. I think Angela Thomas has a new book coming out next year called The Hate You Give, which is an all, it's a woman protagonist dealing with police brutality. Mm. Nick Stone has a book coming out next year, I think, called Dear Martin, which is also about police brutality uh, for young people. Daniel Jose Older has a book called Shadow Shaper, uh, which is just a brilliant look. Also, a woman, protag- a young girl protagonist dealing with sort of gentrification in Brooklyn and sort of erasure and the, the concept of erasure. Ugh, God, American Street by E.B. Zaboy coming out next year, dealing with otherness, like being othered um, and sort of what that's like. I mean, there are so many incredible books being written right now just about all of these things. And I, I feel like we're in a, we're in a, we're sitting in a really nice time, a really good time for literature. Like it's amazing. And then on the adult side, I mean, good luck and going yeah. forever. Just mm-hmm. I'm going forever. And I won't, but there are, <laughs> there are just so many incredible books to be, to be read right now that you can use as not just a pairing tool, but just as other sort of tools to be used uh, to have this conversation. Sure. Well, thank you so much for coming. This was great. Um, again, we really, I, I, well, I speak, speaking for myself I really enjoyed the book and I, mm-hmm. I think it's uh it's helpful for me like a lot of what I'm doing is uh it's kind of like consuming uh different like books and stories and trying to like funnel them away my kids only like one so, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's a little while before we can like have a conversation yeah. but uh but no there's a lot that I want to give her to kind of really to, to to understand things and I think this is definitely like helpful in having those conversations Jackie Woodson's children's books uh hey I'm with you. Uh, yeah, we got, I mean, like, our, our list of books, my, my wife works in publishing. Oh, so, like, we, yeah, yeah, we yeah, got. Yeah. <laughs> no, she works in publishing and she used to be a teacher. Yeah, and uh, she's a writer. So. Yeah, oh, so, so you, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's just along for the ride. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but no, thank you again so much for coming. And yeah. where can people find more information about you? I'm at, uh, at Jason Reynolds 83 on all the things. Uh, and my <laughs> website is uh, jasonwritesbooks.com. I'm brendankiley.com and you can find all the social media links right there. All right, cool. That's beautiful. Well, this has been another episode of A Color Nerds. Yes, if you like the show, please support us on Patreon at patreon.com 
slash for color nerds. If you give as little as one dollar, you are helping uh, helping us like actually get a producer so that the show comes out on time <laughs> and then we're not crying all the time trying to make it. Yes. We bleed for this shit. <laughs> <laughs> but you can also support us on iTunes by going to leave a five star review. Five star only. We appreciate it. Uh, but we'll be back soon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks so much. Later. Bye. Bye. Hey, everybody. It's Rob Lowe here. If you haven't heard, I have a podcast that's called Literally with Rob Lowe. And basically, it's conversations I've had that really make you feel like you're pulling up a chair at an intimate dinner between myself and people that I admire, like Aaron Sorkin or Tiffany Haddish, Demi Moore, Chris Pratt, Michael J. Fox. There are new episodes out every Thursday. So subscribe, please, and listen wherever you get your podcasts.